Today on Sagittarian Matters, we talk about diva cups, lesbian bingo, professional practices, writing, and more with my very special guest, Mariko Tamaki. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters, Sagittarian Matters, what's the from Los Angeles. Today's episode is a very special in conversation with Mariko Tamaki, which was recorded live at the Queers and Comics Conference in New York City last weekend. I need to apologize for the audio quality of this week's episode, but I do think that if you can deal and you can pretend like you're in the audience or something, that you will get something out of our rapid fire conversation in which we chose pre-written questions out of a grocery bag. Another couple of caveats before you listen to our talk. We discuss astrology at some point, and I say that Capricorns are bummers. Now, if you are a frequent listener, you know that every single planet in my astrological chart is in Capricorn, except for my Sagittarius sun, and thus I am describing myself and my workaholic nature. However, my guest is a Capricorn, and I would never want you to think that I was describing Mariko that way because she... A bummer, she is not. Um, I do want you to know also, just as a side note, that we hold Capricorns in very high esteem, and one of our friends to the show may even be in the midst of trying to commission her own personal theme song for when she is a guest that goes, Capricorn matters, what's the matter with you? So put that in your pocket. Some more business. As you now know, I was incorrect in last week's introduction when I said I was on my way to the Drag Race finale. Apparently, I was wrong. I met up with Mariko in New York to watch the finale, and we watched the second to the second to the last episode. I didn't realize it was going to be this spread out this year. For some reason, I thought it was like Survivor. Um, And so the Drag Race finale is going to be next week. In other news... Producer Ponyo's left eye, which was in the process of lip syncing for its life, got a firm Shantae you stay today from her ophthalmologist. So congratulations, producer Ponyo, and her oracle eye goes on to dance another day. Very happy about that. I will say, bad news is I did try to dye the dog pink with some all-natural vegan plant-based colored conditioner. And I got mixed results. When you try to dye somebody whose fur is brown and not white, the results may vary. And it's possible I owe the dog an amends, but more will be revealed. So there's that. I think that's it. Um, I had some really bad boba tea today. If you're vegan, you know that your bubble tea journey will lead you on many different inquiries and possible... um, fights with people working at boba places about whether or not the non-dairy creamer is really non-dairy or not because casein is lurking behind many places but um yeah that's just what we do when we're looking for boba you know today i got some boba that was like a firm non-dairy creamer questionable dairy content but the thing that was the clincher was the boba you can tell when boba balls are old because they either are really hard or they're falling apart in a weird, gross way. And so that was my boba experience. And I don't want to tell you the name of the place. It's a very small hole-in-the-wall place. But I will tell you that Pine and Crane and Joy in Los Angeles both have taro bubble tea that they'll make you with soy milk. 
that has chunks of taro in it that they swear is vegan. So there you go. All right. Have a great week and enjoy my talk with Mariko Tamaki. Mariko Tamaki is the co-creator of the award-winning comics This One Summer and Skim with Jillian Tamaki. She's the author of the YA novel Saving Montgomery's Soul, and she has written for Tomb Raider, She-Hulk, Wolverine, Supergirl, and more. Her new graphic novel, drawn by Rosemary Valero O'Connell, is out now with first second. It's called Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, and I liked it so much, I wrote a blurb for the back. Now please welcome back to the show my esteemed Capricorn guest, Mariko Tamaki. Mariko, what is your pop culture obsession? My pop culture obsession is reality television. I talk about it all the time. Uh, I just spent a night watching 90 Day Fiancé. I, like, didn't get work done. Good. Because there was a marathon of 90 Day Fiancé. Mm-hmm. Um, I love and hate reality television. It's, like, the family that I don't deserve. Like, spending time with people behaving badly for cameras, which is sort of, like, I don't know. Maybe this is saying something too revealing, but it's very familiar to me. Um, and I love, like, Project Runway, RuPaul's Drag Race, like, all of those things. And actually, I went to RuPaul's DragCon, and um, Ashley Neal Tipton was there, uh, and I screamed like it was the Beatles, because I was so excited to see her. That's how I feel about The Amazing Race. Right. The Amazing Race is my favorite show. Really? I had to put it down because I flew too close to the sun. I applied for the show five times. They accepted me. I almost got on the show. Well, almost being they said, can we fly you down for finals week, put you up in a hotel, we can't wait. We think we can push you through. We never had a team like this. And then my partner bailed at the last minute. No. And I was so devastated and, like, I was pretty tweaked. I don't yeah. know how to – I was pretty tweaked about it. Like, I was trying so hard to make a solution to a problem. Like, the produ- I was pitching all my friends to the producers. I was like, what about this guy? What about my roommate? What about and they were like, no. And then, like, this guy. my brain kind of broke a little bit. And I, I just was like – I. It's not healthy for me, the way I'm thinking about the show right now, so I need to take a break from the yeah. show. But now I'm back. I'm getting back in. And I found other friends that are willing to um, aid in a bed in my obsession. I knew that I was going to get divorced because one time I was talking to my now ex-wife about who I would do Amazing Race with, and I was like, well, not you. <laughs> Mariko, this is how my new book I'm working on starts, is that I knew that things were over with my life partner because she withdrew her name from the hat as my amazing race partner. Yeah, I basically said to my ex-wife, like, I don't want to fight with you on camera the way we fight. <laughs> like, we would be, like, in an airport in, like, Dusseldorf, Dusseldorf or something, and I'd be like, we can't work like this! Yeah. So, and then we got divorced. Um, but it's fine. I have a girlfriend. She's awesome. Okay. Uh, Nicole, what was your... What was the best part of your... What was your first publishing experience, and what was the best part of it? Gosh, I have small publishing experience and big publishing experience. Well, pick one of those. Pick one. Pick the better one. First, That's literally the question. <laughs> I wrote it. Um, I started self-publishing my Z, my ska zine when I was fourteen. Oh, that's so rad. And I feel like the highlight of that was on prom night, like leaving prom early to go to Kinko's with my high school boyfriend and just running off copies of my ska zine. Um, 
My first big publishing experience was with Houghton Mifflin. I had been published by smaller punk publishers for a while, and I was really happy to have an editor and somebody who could add to the story and make it better. I had never had an editor before, and as an autobiographer, you take a lot of information for granted when you're telling your story. Like You're like, of course my family talks this way. Of course uh, this thing happens. Of course I have my arm in a sling because such and such. And then having somebody look at it and say, can you please explain why? And that all is just there to make the story better. That was the best part for me. What was the best part for you about your first publishing experience? Uh, my first publisher was the woman who taught me a creative writing for women class at a college in Toronto. And so she published my first novella. Um, and it was like a woman in her garage, and I was her secretary, and then she published my book. So it's a very like close thing. Um, and in the beginning of publishing, they used to always throw you a party when your book came out. So it's like when you're a kid, you get this false sense of your importance because you're like, oh, my book comes out, so obviously we're having a party. And then I got a big publisher, and they were like, your book's out. I was like, cool, so when's the party? And they were like, there's no party. <laughs> they were like, you got to go and promote it now. And I was like, oh, they're like, in front of these, there was a party. And they were like, no, none of that. You have to throw your own party. Yeah, you are your own party. You basically. are your own party. You throw your own party. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wait, hold on, hold on. We gotta get we gotta get kooky in a second. I want to lay some foundation for my drag name. Hold on. <laughs> I love my drag name. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. Hold on. <laughs> that is like fully not the point of what we did. I like wrote all these out by hand. Whatever. Okay. All right. This is another one of yours. What age would you describe yourself as, and why? Um, well, I write YA, and so people always ask me why I write so many books about teenagers, and I think that there's like a, like a solid part of my soul, like 80% of my soul is still a teenager, and then the, my body is solidly 43, because I'm, like, I feel 43, like, right now I feel really 43. I want to ask you a follow-up question that I've written in here, but I'm just going to ask it. Just ask it. Because we're in conversation. Sure. The question is, um, I feel like... You know, there's kind of this idea that people just basically write the same book over and over and over again, yes. wearing different clothes. And so I want to know, is that true for you? And if so, like, what is that book? What is the story that you are that you feel like you are compelled to keep telling? Okay, that's a really good question. Thank you very much. Okay, so my theory is that when you start writing, like when you're like a teenager and you're writing your little stories, you write the same story over and over again. So my story that I was writing over and over again was definitely Skin. Like the story of like being a misunderstood, like it's completely fictional obviously, but like a misunderstood teenager who's obsessed with like, like who's gay and so is falling in love with like substitute teachers or whatever, which was like, it was always me, like horseback riding instructors, <laughs> substitute teachers. I was always like, me and Mrs. Jerkowitz are like destined to be, so I don't really want to get into it, but that's what's gonna happen. Um, and then I feel like I kind of wrote versions of that story, and then I finally wrote Skim, and then I, like, broke the spell, and I was done with that story. So I think that's actually, like, I think, like, I always tell students, like, the first book you write is, I mean, like, the first full book you write is the closest thing to you. And it's usually something really personal, and it's a story that you know so well because you've been writing it your whole, like, writing brain life. But it's really good to get that story out so that that's not the story you write indefinitely. 
What to you is the common thread in all of your characters? Because you, you write now for such broad, broad that you write for TV, you write for Marvel, you write for, you know, like for a second, you write for YA, like all this stuff. What is the common thread between many of your protagonists? I think all my protagonists are misunderstood and generally outsiders, um, whether because they're mutants or because they're like fat Asian girls, which are sort of the same. I say that as both. I am both. Um, a mutant. I am both a mutant and Asian and uh, fat and Asian. Um, but I think that what I've sort of evolved is like the glory of that, like really embracing and kind of making those characters for how, like, amazing they are and then, like, putting them through horrible things and, like, then, like, wrenching them out again. I'm actually getting meaner to my characters as I get older. I feel more addicted to plot as I get older. Like, I've been reading more and more... Because, you know, I like heady books and I keep reading these novels where I'm like, nothing's happening. So many character studies... So many books, like, it's not a plot-driven, it's character-driven, and I just am losing patience for it. I'm like, how about you have an interesting character, and then something happens to them? Right. <laughs> like, I just, I, I know that that sounds like, oh my gosh. But then when you start writing a book, do you know the something that happens to them first, or do you know the character? I mean, it's you. It's me. I... So you're like, it's me, and this is the thing that happens to me that I specifically want to write about. You know what? I feel like something needs to happen in every chapter that advances the story. And any places that it doesn't, I feel like I'm just being um, kind of, I'm luxuriating. And I'm like, it's a character-driven chapter. Right. But it's character building. It's shedding light on something about the character. But in general, I feel like that's me being lazy and a slacker because both of those things could be true. Yeah. I mean, I... I, I mean, I, I wrote uh, I, like I wrote a comic where like it's just like them in the summer. What happens? It's like the summer. Yeah. It's like stuff. Like there's like pages and pages of Jillian Drew that's just like what? Well, they're just golfing now. Now they're just going barbecuing. It's no big deal. I mean, I like that. I like luxuriating, and actually, that makes me. I've read people's comments online about my superhero comics, where they're like, "Nothing happens for like the first. Like, I wrote a Wolverine comic, and these guys were like, "Nothing happens for like three pages, but then something really big happens." And I was like, "Cause I was having a Twilight Zone midnight special moment, and I was just luxuriating in that. So just get into it. Like, See, just enjoy it." That's the kind of Wolverine that I would like to read. Yeah, midnight special Wolverine. But then when I'm listening to books on tape that are 17 hours long and three hours, and I'm like, "Oh boy." Yeah. Nothing is going to happen. I, and I asked friends, has anything happened in this? And they're like, oh, not really. Right. I'm just like, I can't. But then I was reading Harry Potter once, and I got such a massive headache because I was like, there's something always happening to this kid. Like, this kid never has a character moment where he's just like, I'm going to take up macrame because I feel like I just want to better myself as a person. No. I'm Harry Potter, and this shit is always going down. Okay. Wait, I want to answer my own question. Oh. And the way I want to answer it is this. Oh, I don't, I don't want to take away from this. No, just go. But I... I feel like I realize that I've written multiple books that are all about finding home, finding a place, finding yes. stability after coming from chaos. Right. And I don't know, I may continue writing that for the rest of my life. I think that's okay. As okay. long as it's like, a, it's like a slightly different... Like, actually, some snarky kid wants... Not a snarky kid. Like, a regular tone kid. Um, <laughs> at a high school, said to me, like, you tend to write stories about, like, identity and what identity means, but he's like kind of all your books are like that so like do you ever worry about that I was like I do now (laughs) Um, well so do white guys but nobody calls it identity well but I was saying like 
you know, I uh, like that all books are about identity. Yeah. Like, I mean, even a book about finding home is about, you know, feeling like you are in a home, which is about identity, ultimately. Like, I think that even, like, some of my favorite superhero comics are about identity, ultimately. So, I mean, that's what all mutant books are about is identity. Get with it. I also want to tell you, I feel 28 and, like, 85 at the same time. Well, with this dress, it's, like, fully that, right? 1485. (laughs) One of my best friends was like, George's is an active senior in a young person's body. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't don't disagree. Yeah. I think the best homosexuals are very young and very old at the same time. Whenever it's convenient for them. They're, like, young when they want it to be, and then when they're tired, they're like, I'm old. And then they, like, go home early and order Ubers or whatever. My Tinder profile, out of, I had like four words on it. One of them was Sophia Petrillo. Oh. And then some people didn't even know who that was. And I was like, well, you know, see yourself out. Today's episode is brought to you by Megan, Loam, and Ella, Elizabeth Storms, Shoshana Ruth Wechter, Michelle Lemoyne, Mary Pinson, Jill Soloway, and Christy Herrett. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, including producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $10, $5 million, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That's hornet like the insect, leg like its appendage at gmail. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it, too. Don't be scared. That's just Ponyo's voice. What do you remember as your first lesbian moment? Like, when were you like, I'm a lesbian? I don't know. Well, then forget it. My first, I mean, I think I had, like, my first, like, bi-curious moment, (laughs) which was that I had a locker mate that I was really into. Um, I mean, you know, I was weird. Like, I would, like, kind of, like, hump on my ventriloquist dummy, but that was a man. So, but, but also the ventriloquist dummy looked like the women and trans men that I went on to date. So, you know, you do the math. That could have been my first queer experience. My first lesbian experience was having a crush on my locker mate in high school, and she liked Marilyn Manson, which wasn't cool at the time if you were a punk. That was not cool. And I know it's having a retro thing where people are like, "Mm, everything gothish is cool. But it was like a big thing for me to get her a Marilyn Manson sticker at Hot Topic and be like, I got you something. And I thought Marilyn Manson was so whack, but I was like, you can put it up on our locker. And she was so happy about it. I feel like the perfect tell of lesbianism is unnecessary gifts to female friends. Well, the, the first, so when I broke out of my, like, straight chamber and was like, I'm ready to roll. And I didn't even have a bi middle ground at that point. I just was like, one or the other, black or white thinking. I'm just throwing this all out with the bathwater. And I went for this girl, and I realized I didn't know how to court a girl. Yeah. Because I had been courting guys, and it was much easier. Right. And I respected her so much that I was paralyzed, and I just ended up giving her gifts. I yeah. drew her something, and then I would, like, buy her cigarettes or, like, buy her a coffee. <laughs> buy someone a cigarette? I was like, m'lady. Like, <laughs> 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 I this is your brand. Um, I made a lot of friendship bracelets mm. uh, that a lot of people were like, oh, that's so nice. And I was like, I'm so in love with you. <laughs> Please understand that from this friendship bracelet, like, that's what this means. People would just like carelessly be like, "Oh, I gave it to Susan because she loves it too." And I was just, "No, that's great." You're like, "There's a love spell on it." Yeah, exactly. 
Um, mine was uh, Linda Carter's Wonder Woman. Because oh. I was constantly having Linda Carter dreams. And I'd wake up like, I wonder why I'm always dreaming about Linda Carter. It must be Linda <laughs> Wonder Woman. And then it happened with um, Designing Women. I had a lot of Designing Women dreams. <laughs> Who did you like from Designing Women? All of them. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I was very open to all the designing women. <laughs> what was the guy's name? He played Hollywood, a mannequin. What was his name on the show? Anthony. 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 I like. I feel like I identify with Anthony. Um, what has been a helpful advice or attitude for you that you've heard? Has anyone given you helpful advice or are there helpful attitudes in comics? Slash, what are unhelpful things that you've heard or encountered? Helpful things. Um... I think because I started out in feminist queer publishing when the when the stakes were so small, they'd be like, "We sold ten copies of your book. You're amazing." It was very chill, um, and I think that that kind of gave me a sort of low stakes sense of what I was doing, which I think is good. Um, Joan Hilty gave me my first writing for superheroes advice, and she said, uh, "Well, to your earlier point, she was like, you got no ticking clock.'" She's like, you just got these characters kind of hanging around, and then someone's like, oh, should we be going saving the day? She was like, you need, like, keep it going, keep it going. I think about your ticking clock advice that she oh, gave you. Oh, it's very good t- ticking clock, Joan, if you're here. I would say thank you, because I think I do say that. Like, when people are like, what's missing? You're like, there's no urgency. There's mm-hmm. no, like, um, and I'm very anxious, so I don't like urgency, so I have to, like, build it in. Um, and then, oh, the worst advice I ever got was when I was working with a women's press and the editor saw me do a book talk and she came up to me afterwards and she said, you know, when you go to do a book talk, just read from your book. Nobody wants to hear you talk. (laughs) Nobody wants to hear your little thoughts you have before you talk. And I was like, oh, really? Shit. I love my little thoughts. That's untrue. I know, and I was like, then later I was like, I think she's wrong. I just had like a moment of like self-awareness where I was like, I think that that's okay. I think she's paranoid about that. It's like always like a great adult moment where you realize people's advice to you is their advice that they want to give themselves. Mm. And then that's so you can just say to them like, oh, is that what you do? Is that what you're worried about? Is that why you're saying that to me? Madame. And then you're like, go away. I think... The least helpful thing I can think of is the idea of competition, which I've heard from different, mostly straight dude cartoonists that are like, I want to level up because the people around me are doing so good and I want to compete with them. Or like, just like the idea of scarcity. I'm just going to use this as a way to segue to my soapbox. So like, there's not actually a scarcity. Like, we're all marginalized in some way for the most part in this room, unless you're an infiltrator. Um, <laughs> but like, there's not a limited amount of queer cartoonists there can be. There's not a limited amount of yeah. women, people of color, trans people like there's not a limited amount of spaces for you and so I feel like there's kind of like a construct where people make you believe like oh well that that already exists like like I couldn't write a queer memoir because Alison Bechdel already exists right I mean there is this thing that happens in the publishing world where I have definitely been told when I like had a book submitted to a publisher that they said they already have a lesbian so you're like fuck her who is that other lesbian who's always taking my spot it's like when you see like when you're like going into the airport they call zone two and you see someone go in you're like you are not zone two you are not zone two get back here with me specifically called zone two and then I like (laughs) eek forward Um, but I think the most helpful things I've heard the most helpful advice I mean I think 
The idea in this originated, I guess, in the Call Your Girlfriend podcast was shine theory, which is if you shine, I shine. It's kind of like we all rise together. So, like, me helping you is not a detriment to me. It actually helps me in the long run. Like, if you do well, I'm doing well. Like, you can bring your friends up with you, and you can make more space at the top. Like, once you get to a place, you can kick out more space and bring your friends up with you. And so that's kind of anti-competition, and it is a feminist value to me. I think, I mean, if I cannot take a job... I'm always happy to, like, or if I don't think a job is right for me, it's, like, one of the great joys to be able to say, but I think you should take this person. Mm-hmm. I think this person is amazing. Like, maybe this person you haven't thought of for these things. And I think I had a publisher recently kind of give a speech about, like, hey, you should, you know, promote your friends. And I was like, who isn't promoting their friends? Like, yeah. I do that all the time. I love my friends. My friends are amazing writers and artists, and I want to talk about my friends obsessively. And if somebody gets something, it's because they're a good fit. It's not because you aren't good. It's just because they're a good fit for the thing. Well, I mean, within reason. Like, I think there's, like, not necessarily a meritocracy. And there are some people who get things because it's like, um, we just really need a white guy for this. I don't yeah. know why, but we just really do. Like, that also. They're like, that's what I'm used to thinking of when yeah. I think of this role. And there's one. He's right there. Yeah. He's available. He's, he's mediocre. Yeah, he's mediocre. Okay. Did I ask a question? You did. Go so ahead. It's my turn. Okay. What is something you cannot read or watch? I'm never going to draw the president, the current sitting president of the United States. I'm never going to draw him. Thank you very much. Because I feel like um, when I draw something, I have to embody it in some way. Like, it's oh. almost like I'm casting a spell or, like, I'm embodying it in some way. And so for that reason, I'm, like, on Shark Tank. For that reason, I'm out. Um, I can't draw people I don't like and I can't draw I don't want to draw that person I just don't feel like it's like I you know let's let's here's the, your lesbian moment okay. even though I'm queer but the lesbian moment is this uh, I listened to a podcast hosted by a witch named Pomegranate Doyle and she was talking about why it's bad for witches to cast binding spells on Trump because then they are bound to him somehow like they're still part of the spell so they're bound to him and so it's better for them to work towards positive things and I feel that way too I'm like I don't want to cast the spell upon him and then have to share that Voldemort space for a second so that's what I cannot for those who are doing the lesbian panel bingo the witch podcast you can put your ex on (laughs) (laughs) that would be good we should have done that that would have been really good the person who wins gets a diva cup yeah (laughs) whether or not you have Anything to put you put it in your butt if you Yeah. Just wear it like a necklace. Put it in your mouth. And make other people uncomfortable. When you yeah. take it off and tea, Use it as a like, shot glass, yeah. ladies. <laughs> that that's also a good... you can strike off Diva Cup now from there. <laughs> um, I actually one thing I won't draw anymore, because I smoked as a teenager, um, mostly to survive high school. Like I was just so desperate to be cool. And so I forced myself through a very hard period to smoke so that people would respect me. And it worked. <laughs> um, so I made, I had teenagers smoking in a lot of my books for the longest time because I smoked. And so it was just sort of this thing that I didn't even realize I was doing. Um, and then I realized, like, oh, I really don't like that. I don't want, I think that image of, like, that kind of you sort of marry those two things together in your head, that it's part of, like, becoming an adolescent or whatever, um, so I stopped doing that. Now I don't drop people smoking anymore. I don't, I don't think I ever do. I drew myself once trying to be dramatic smoking after a breakup, but it was for like that one page. I also will never draw anything that promotes eating or hurting animals. So like 
you know, I've had someone be like, I'll give you $1,000 to draw this sign for my charcuterie. And I was like, uh-uh. Right. I just can't. I can't use my powers for evil. Oh. Do you buy into astrological signs? And if so, how do you exemplify your astro identity? Mingo! <laughs> Sagittarius of the Capricorn moon and Capricorn rising. I feel it very much. Uh, I am a Capricorn. I don't know what my moon is or anything. Come on. I am a Capricorn that feels like a Capricorn all the time. A Capricorn is hardworking. They're kind of a bummer. They are no nonsense. <laughs> Jessica Lanyato said they're here for your daddy issues. They're kind of like she was like they're kind of like a Mary Poppins daddy kind of person. She's a Capricorn. That's how she described. It. I don't know if you agree. I feel like Capricorns always let you know that they are working, which I notice when other Capricorns are like, I mean, I'm kind of working today, and you're like, I didn't ask you. <laughs> and then I, I saw text messages that I was sending, and I was like, I just let eight people know that I'm working right now. Um, and but I feel like the goat, like you know, when you see goats like standing on a cliff, and it's like an impossible lip that they're standing on, and they're just standing there like whatever. This is where I live. I live in this like fine line between cliff and death. That's yeah. where I am. I feel like that is me. I feel like that image all the time. Yeah. Like how do you, how much how do you feel like a Sagittarius? I feel like a Sagittarius because I like I like people. I like fun. I don't like bummers. Um, but we get along okay. But we get along okay. I don't, I don't like Debbie Downers. I don't like a drag on the party. But then I'm like, oh, but now it's time to go to work, so get away from me. Yeah. If you have an advice question for Sagittarian Matters, call or text our advice hotline, 971-361-9998. Leave a message. We might answer your question on the air, and we promise not to answer the phone. That is a Sagittarian promise that you can take all the way to the bank. Okay, so what do you say to people, because you write nonfiction, obviously, but what do you say to people who, like, have questions for you about how they're portrayed in your books, or, like, have issues with how they're portrayed in your books? Mm. Do you have, like, a rogue answer, or do you just, like, avoid it, or? Well, stepping one step before that is, I really endeavor to just tell my emotional truth and to make it known in the books that it's just my emotional truth that I'm not telling the definitive story of what happened. And so to do that, I make my own character a little bit flawed, a little bit vulnerable, not always, you know, so admirable. Um, And so I feel like that, that's kind of, that being there, I feel like is good for my defense. You know, if I were to go to, if I'm going to this court, (laughs) if I'm in this court, if I'm in this people's court of like, why did you draw me like that in your book? Right. Um, But for the most part, I have only drawn people that are such wild narcissists that they are so happy to be drawn. It's kind of like, like even with my mom who gave me a one star Amazon review for each of each of my books, the second of which got taken down for being too abusive. Um, it's, my friend Beth Thicken said it's like if Joan Crawford had the internet right. was the second book review but my mom and some people I've drawn are kind of like Francis at the end of Pee Wee's Big Adventure where they're like Pee Wee let's take a picture if it wasn't for me you wouldn't have gotten in this situation right. like it's like you know like truly he stole your bike and caused you all this harm and made you go across the country but if it weren't for him you wouldn't have had all this attention anyway so my family and my friends have been kind of like that so I kind of don't say anything except for you know mom or like I it was hard that thing was hard for me and I needed to process it somehow because I certainly wasn't able to process it with you right I mean I write fiction so I mean my first novella that I wrote was was called cover me and it was very autobiographical and I never heard the end of it so I vowed never to do that again um and so I specifically go out of my way to make sure that there are key details about characters that I'm not 
taking it directly from myself. Like when I, like I, when I was a kid, went to a cottage in Georgian Bay, and you know had those experiences. And there are some little details, like there was a store, and there's like little details that are true. But I was very clear to make sure that it wasn't anybody specific. In part because I feel like. I mean, it's like a challenge for me to sort of find that truth in something that I'm making up. Um, and like, you know, now that I've written this book about ex-girlfriends, like the people always ask me like, so who of your ex-girlfriends is this? And you're like, she follows me on Facebook, so I can't really talk about it. But, you know, the truth is, is that I would never, I would never take an ex-girlfriend of mine and then use that as a way of writing a story. No, in Conan Dr. Laura, there's a girl who steals my girlfriend and then takes my place in our band. And that was actually a composite of two girls that conspired right. to do those things. Like, you know, like there definitely was one girl who took my place in the band and stole my girlfriend. But then there was another girl who had right. been my friend. who took. So I just switched up their details. I smushed it together. Like, I made it have the face of one of them, the details of the other one. Right. Because you never want to use your art as a way to be like, look, I have a bigger platform than you and I'm going to... I'm going to get you yeah, for... Yes, what you did. <laughs> right. I mean, when I wrote Skim, it's about a girl who goes to a private school who falls in love with their teacher and they have this kind of moment together. And it's fiction. And so... But when I went back to my high school, so many of the teachers that were there when I was in high school were, like, in for the juicy gossip. They were like, so, who is this? <laughs> and I was like, gross. Like, if it was true, it would actually be a criminal story. Yeah. Like, if it was true that this person did do this to me, it would actually be kind of an intense thing, right? Yeah. Not that I would tell you, you failed me in history, whatever. But, like, you know, it sort of was interesting to see all these people, like, you know, the juicy gossip of, like, this kind of underground romance. People love people love being like, how has your mom received your book? Like, they're so excited to be like, was she infuriated? Yeah, I'm like... Well, I was like, I feel like I've really given you quite a lot of her personal yeah. details at this point, and I got paid for it the first time. So, right. <laughs> anyway, no more that. Mariko. Yes. How has helping the community helped you in the long run? I feel that you've always been a part of some kind of feminist community or artistic circles, and you are always lending a hand to other people. I mean, I come from that though. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Toronto. Anyone else here from Toronto? No. Well, you're lost. Uh, and I grew up in this community of artists, and you know, I grew up in, I worked at Buddies and Bad Times Theater, which is like an LGBTQ theater in Toronto, and was involved in, you know, there were so many people who were sort of connected to that theater, and we all, like, you know, you paint a set for somebody, you like help someone with their script, you like play a crappy part in someone's play that's really embarrassing, but you support them. So, like, that part of being an artist has always been kind of free floating. And I had a lot of really amazing writers group when I writers groups when I was growing up of like you and your friends sitting around with printouts of someone's story and like telling your truth mm-hmm. and then telling the truth to somebody about how you feel about it. Um, so that's always been. I mean, I I love that. I think that that's awesome. So I think that that has also put me in contact with really inspiring people. Like I'm absolutely inspired by all the members of my community, my, like, queer comics community, and, you know, especially people who are kind of coming up and starting to make work now, like, I'm fascinated by, I went to FlameCon last year, and I was so fascinated by, like, sort of the art style that's kind of coming up, it's kind of, like, um, like, Lisa Frank, super bright, neon, like, hyper-realistic, but cartoony style, like, I love that part of being an artist. 
Yeah. How are you helping your community? I've all I've always had a strong community spirit and wanting to help people in the ways the community helped me. Um, but I feel like you know when people say like, how did you get an agent or how did you get a publisher or whatever? Everything I've ever gotten has come back to the community connections I made through helping the community or serving the community. Right. So you know like. You know, working for the Independent Publishing Resource Center, a community publishing space in Portland, volunteering there a trillion hours a month, um, I met somebody and then we had a cartooning group together and then he offered to publish me. Or doing a benefit show for somebody, I met Michelle T who took me on Sister Spit and then I found my first agent that way. So all these different ways of giving back to the community and trying to lift other people's voices ended up helping me. And I can't express that enough to people that are kind of newly getting into comics is... It doesn't serve you to just serve yourself, especially because comics is so small and we all need each other. Yeah, I think it's also worth saying to people, like, it's hard to come cold into these things. Like, if you just sort of show up and you're like, I want to make comics and I want an agent, it's like, well, do you know any other comics people? Do you go to comics conventions? Do you, like, you know, like, it's hard to put, like, a social requirement on that but it really does require that you really do need to sort of make an effort to become part of a community it's hard to come in cold and just be like i made this book now somebody printed and someone represent me like it's just difficult well i have a okay i have a weird before q a or just on general two minutes left two minutes left well i have one thing to say which is that when i started in i was in the zine world and then in comics I, the first time I went to a comics festival, it was so gross. There was a straight guy who was like, you're like my dream girl. I want you to be mean to me. And I was like, I don't want any part of this. And then it was against my best interest to not be part of the comics world. So when Colin Dr. Laura came out, I actually did almost like a, like a little like reparative tour where I went around and like shook hands and kissed babies to be like, hey, straight guys, it's, I'm so happy to see you. Uh, but it's hard being a queer cartoonist with very little tolerance for straight cis dude shenanigans right. in the which greater is, comic scheme. Which is why this is really awesome. Yeah. And we really appreciate you guys having us here. We're sorry we didn't give any space for questions and we just talked in the dark like this. Um, but, like, thanks for coming, you guys. <laughs> Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Tanya Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.